Uh, this is March 19, 2023. And today we'll be talking about right effort and right concentration. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. I wanted to do a talk about um, right effort, um, but then as I was kind of finishing my outline uh, last night, I realized it was kind of leaking into right concentration and actually it really doesn't matter uh, because uh, both of them are uh, really important aspects of our practice. And uh, I think most of this talk will be about right concentration. And then if I have time, then go into right effort. But like I said, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. So I'll just go through them. Right understanding. Actually, I was reading a book uh, that had, instead of right understanding, it had skillful understanding, which I quite like. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll say it that way. Uh, skillful understanding, skillful thought, skillful speech, skillful action, skillful livelihood, skillful effort, skillful mindfulness, and skillful concentration. Uh, effort and concentration are also part of the six paramitas, the six perfections. So we have giving, dana, morality, sila, patience or forbearance with kashanti, effort, which is virya, concentration, dhyana, and finally wisdom, praja. So, yeah, I was just to emphasize again the, the, uh, they're both uh, good, uh, important aspects of our practice. And skillful really, I think the reason I like skillful so much is, um, yeah, I want to just explore this a little more in, in this talk. Uh, because there's a skillful way of doing it. And um, so at these workshops, uh, that we give once a month. You know, I'm often one of the monitors, and uh, during the posture demonstration, you know, we'll, we'll give the participants their practice, which is counting the inhalations and exhalations. And then I just find myself saying, just put all of your attention, your concentration on the counting of the breath, you know, um, but not much more than that. Um, so I just thought it'd be kind of interesting to, to kind of explore this a little more to see if this, this can help at all. Um, yeah, the other thing I often say in the workshop, you know, in terms of the practice, in terms of counting the, the, the inhalations and exhalations, is you're trying to avoid the two extremes when you're, you're breathing, when you're doing zazen. You want to avoid suppressing your thoughts and then on the other side of you want to not cling to your thoughts. Really Zen practice is a method, you know, it's not a technique. Both Roshi Kaplan, Roshi Bowden were always fond of saying um, technique are for technicians. And I know speaking personally, and I've heard this from others as well, it can kind of be frustrating, you know, with like you're giving this practice and 
you do it right and and but you want like you know <laughs> just tell me what to do like do i you know how well in terms of the breathing of course if you're breathing shallow you're breathing shallow if you're breathing deeper slower then uh, we're not trying to manipulate anything that's a big part of zen, zen practice is letting go of stop trying to control everything and just let the practice work for itself just you put in the effort the skillful effort this this concentration and it it's kind of it really is it's just it's just by doing it year after year after year that we become more skillful and it's like a really a trial and error process um but it's just by the doing of it that that uh we get better at it every day and you know of course there are teachers that give different analogies to describe the practice to give give us some kind of footing on it um the one i've really liked and we've heard we've heard recently um is from opening the hand of thought uh, this is by this is a book by kosho uchiyama Roshi, so this is how he describes this hand of thought. He says, I use this expression, opening the hand of thought, to explain as graphically as possible the connection between human beings and the process of thinking. Now, footnote, this process of thinking, uh, this should be understood to include the emotions, feelings, and all sense perceptions, as well as thoughts. So this thinking means to be grasping or holding onto something with our brain's conceptual hand. So it's kind of a great image, this, this fist, when I was reflecting on this. You know, um, well, let me just finish what he says. But if we open it, that is, if we open this hand, this conceptual hand, if we open it, if we don't conceive, what is in our hand falls away. So yeah, the suppressing, you can see this in the fist, you know, this is our practice right here. And we're either like suppressing our thoughts, trying to squeeze them out, God damn it, get them out of there, or we're clinging to it. And all we need to do when we're doing Zazen is just opening up that hand. Just, just open it up. Just let the thoughts be, just let the feelings or anxiety or whatever we're experiencing, just put your attention onto the practice and you're opening up that hand of thought. Don't do anything with them. So this fist of suppressing or grasping. Cut! I mean, I remember hearing this quite often in Sashin, and it was kind of, I just kind of didn't quite get it. You know, I just, I saw this cut, cut, cut. Of course, um, cutting is, comes from this delusion cutting sword of Mandrushri. We used to have the Bodhisattva of Wisdom on, on the altar in front of the Buddha uh, during our Sashins. And uh, I just kind of, I, I, 
it took me a long time to realize that cut, cut, cut was not like suppress, 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 which is what I was doing. So, you know, and this was after years of, of doing Sashin and practice. And I remember this one time I was in Doksan and I cannot remember what I said, but Roshi just said, you know, it's not about suppressing your thoughts. And it finally got through my thick Canadian skull <laughs> that I was, you know, I was pr trying to stop my thoughts, which is, of course, impossible to do. So it finally sunk in. And, you know, this is something that, you know, even senior practitioners will find themselves doing. Uh, I'm just going to read from um, this book called Silent Illumination. It's by Guo Gu, uh, and he's a Dharma heir of uh, the teacher Shen Yen. And it's in a section called Ghost Caves. And he starts, even if even serious meditators often perceive thoughts, no matter how subtle they may be, as the enemy. Because we tend to be repulsed by wandering thoughts in meditation, we focus on the stillness that arises and hold on to it. This reminds me of this quote by Poshan. Once those who have lived amidst the noise and restlessness of worldly affairs experience the joy of quietness, they become captivated by its honey-sweet taste, craving it like an exhausted traveler who seeks a peaceful den in which to slumber. How can people with such an attitude retain their awareness? So again, because we tend to be repulsed by wandering thoughts and meditation, you focus on the stillness that arises and hold on to it. We may then try to lock our minds in the state in which thoughts are absent. Deep down, we think that this is the point of meditation, to have a mind free of thoughts. This is a misunderstanding of the principles of practice, and it is criticized by Huang in the platform scripture. This is what he says. Good friends, the way must flow freely. How could it stagnate? When the mind does not abide in things, notice he doesn't say when the mind does not abide without things. When the mind does not abide in things, the way flows freely. When the mind abides in things, this is tethering yourself. Uh, tethering ourselves to our thoughts or, or anxiety or feelings or emotions, anything that's coming up, tethering to that. The way, or the Tao, is awakening. The true nature of our mind is already free. It is only diluted when it is caught up with things. Attaching the states is to be caught up with things, including stillness. Wayanung also states, In this teaching of seated meditation, one fundamentally does not fixate on mind, nor does one fixate on purity or stillness. If one is to fixate on the mind, this is small m, one should know that that mind is fundamentally a delusion. If you realize that the mind is like a phantasm, phantasm, you also realize that there is nothing to fixate on. If one is to fixate on purity, then one should know that because our nature is fundamentally pure, it is through deluded thoughts that suchness is concealed. Just be without deluded thoughts and the nature is pure of itself. It reminds me of that great analogy of, of the clouds and the sun. The sun's always there. Our true nature is always there. 
but we often cloud it over with our thoughts. It's like a weather pattern. The clouds come and go. So how do we practice with effort, whether it's counting the breath or following the breath or working on a koan? Um, and I'm going to read from uh, Everyday Zen. It's by Charlotte Joko Beck. And there's a section here called Fire of Attention. begins. Back in the 1920s, when I was maybe eight or 10 years old and living in New Jersey, where the winters are cold, we had a furnace in our house that burned coal. It was a big event on the block when the coal truck rolled up and all this stuff poured down the coal chute into the coal bin. I learned that there were two kinds of coal that showed up in the coal bin. One was called anthracite, or hard coal, and the other was lignite, soft coal. My father told me about the difference in the way those two kinds of coal burned. Anthracite burns cleanly, leaving little ash. Lignite, that's a soft coal, lignite leaves lots of ash. When we burned lignite, the cellar became covered with soot and some of it got upstairs into the living room. Mother had something to say about that, I remember. <laughs> At night, my father would bank the fire, and I learned to do this too. Banking the fire means covering it with a thin layer of coal and then shutting down the oxygen vent to the furnace so that the fire stays in a slow burning state. Overnight, the house becomes cold, and so in the morning, the fire must be stirred up and the oxy oxygen vent opened. Then the furnace can heat up the house. What does all this have to do with our practice? Practice is about breaking our exclusive identification with ourselves. This process has sometimes been called purifying the mind. To purify the mind doesn't mean that you become holy or other than you are. Again, to purify the mind doesn't mean that you become holy or other than you are. It reminded me of another quote. This is something I got. It was on a little index card that uh, a Sangha member gave me when they found out that I was going to start as head cook. And so I always had it in, in, up on the bulletin board in the kitchen there. And it, over the years, I, I found it again over, you know, and this was like, I, I can't remember, I can't even count the number of years. I think it was like 12 or 13 years ago. And anyways, that card, the, uh, the acid kind of chewed up that index card. And so I created a new one and gave it to the head cook, the new head cook. All right, so this is what Dogen's words on, Dogen's words to an incoming Tenzo. <clears throat> Becoming an ox, you need to pull the plow and the till. Becoming a horse, you need to bite the reins and wear a saddle. Putting on fur crowned with horns, 
swinging the tail and shaking the head, kick over the barrier and enter straight through the dragon gate without seeking to become a sage. Be a person who is capable in your duties. Without valuing personal spiritual development, be the host within the guest. So to purify the mind doesn't mean that you become holy or other than you are. It means to strip away that which keeps a person or a furnace from functioning best. The furnace functions best with hard coal, but unfortunately, what we're full of is soft coal. Right, so this is the skillful part I'm talking about, the skillful effort and concentration. Um, in our daily practice in, in, in Sashin, we're often burning the soft coal, you know, we're just kind of, or yeah, we're basically identifying with our thoughts and, and the hard coal, well, I'll go on, talk more about this. To sit through Sashin is to be in the middle of a refining fire. Edo, Edo Roshi said once, this Zendo is not a peaceful haven, but a furnace room for the combustion of our egoistic delusions. A Zendo is not a, and then she goes on, a Zendo is not a place for bliss and relaxation, but a furnace room for the combustion of our egoistic delusions. What tools do we need to use? Only one. We've all heard of it, yet we use it very seldom. It's called attention. Attention is the cutting, burning sword, and our practice is to use that sword as much as we can. None of us is very willing to use it, but when we do, even for a few minutes, some cutting and burning takes place. All practice aims to increase our ability to be attentive, not just in Zazen, but in every moment of our life. As we sit, we grasp that our conceptual thoughts, thought process is a fantasy, and the more we grasp it, this, the more our ability to pay attention to reality increases. One of the great Chinese masters, Huang Po, said, quote, if you can only rid yourselves of conceptual thoughts, you will have accomplished everything. But if you students of the way do not rid yourselves of conceptual thought in a flash, even though you strive for eon after eon, you will never accomplish it. We, quote, rid ourselves of conceptual thought when, by persistent observation, we recognize the unreality of our self-centered thoughts. Think of the word phantasm or ghost. Our thoughts are just like ghosts. Then we remain dispassionate and fundamentally unaffected by them. Then we can remain dispassionate and fundamentally unaffected by them yeah so as time goes on and if we have a daily practice this inevitably will happen through our efforts we kind of become this impartial witness you know slowly but surely uh, our thoughts are there and we can kind of and we do through through our attention onto the practice we kind of become this impartial observer of our thoughts. You know, we don't take them so personally anymore. 
I always felt like a, a good title of a section of a book about Zen practice would be something like um, Zen practice and your thoughts, colon, don't take it personally. But that's not what we do, uh, especially at, in, in the early stages of our practices. We just can't believe what's going on in our minds and uh, or the things that we're thinking. But uh, as time goes on, they're, they're just thoughts. And it's, it's, it's up to us to to be that impartial observer and just put our attention back onto the method. Oh, that's what I was going to mention earlier too, just talking about how I like that word method, you know. Since Zen practice is not a technique, those are for technicians, but the method is kind of a good description of, of uh, what we're doing. Then we can remain dispassionate and fundamentally unaffected by them. That does not mean to be a cold person. Rather, it means not to be caught and dragged around by circumstances. I can't remember if I told this story before, but it was really my early days of practice and I was in, in Montreal and um, I was pretty much practicing on my own. Um, but then I was coming down this escalator and there was this guy at the bottom of the escalator and um, he just kind of was like really aggressive and he was trying to get me to get a credit card and I already had one, you know. And I was already in, in a lot of student debt and uh, I can't remember what I said, but then he just said, you have to have this credit card. And I just looked at him and I said, no, I don't. And just walked away. Now, a year before that, I, I reflected on that and I realized a year before that, I would have maybe panicked or like filled out his form just to get him out of my, you know, but no, I don't need that credit card. You know, I didn't get caught up in his own drama. And I'm like, okay, there's something to this in practice. And it probably allowed me to be in less debt at the time. <laughs> She goes on, uh, most of us are not much like this. As soon as we get into our workday, we discover we're not at all calm. We have many emotional opinions and judgments about everything. Our feelings are easily hurt. We're by no means, quote, dispassionate and fundamentally unaffected by what is going on. So it's extremely important to remember that the main purpose of doing Sashin is this burning out of thoughts by the fire of attention so that, so that our lives can be dispassionate and fundamentally unaffected by outward circumstances. forgot to mention that this is a Teisho that she gave in Sashin. I don't think there's anyone here of whom that is wholly true, but our practice is to do that. I think I'll just repeat what she said here. Uh, so, it's extremely important to remember that the main purpose of doing Sashin is this burning out of thoughts by the fire of attention, so that our lives can be dispassionate and fundamentally unaffected by outward circumstances. I don't think there's anyone here of whom that is wholly true, yet our practice is to do that. If we truly accomplish this burning out of attachments, there would be no need to sit. 
but I don't think anyone can say that. We need an adequate daily period of zazen in which we attend to what's going on in our minds and bodies. If we don't sit regularly, then we can't comprehend that that if we don't sit regularly, then we can't comprehend that how we wash our car or how we deal with our supervisor is absolutely our practice. As Master Wong Po said, quote, on no account make a distinction between the absolute and the sentient world. Quote, it's nothing more than parking your car, putting on your clothes, taking a walk, but if soft coal is what we're burning, we're not going to realize that. Soft coal simply means that the burning in our life is not clean. We are unable to burn up each circumstance as we encounter it. It kind of reminds me of um, this unable to burn up. Just always remember, you know, we're always instructed to just listen. In fact, I remember Roshi would say, you know, when he's giving Tesho, just kind of act like you're the only one in the room just hearing the Tesho, you know, just put your complete attention on the practice and you're the only one there. And I just remember one time, I think I was sitting right over there uh, at the Kesu. I can't remember what John Sensei was saying, but as soon as that ended, I just, the thought that popped up was, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, it just kind of like, we, we just get st stuck in the machinations of our mind just, at least for me, just kind of resisting, not just listening and focusing on the practice, but then just getting caught up in the own, the own drama of my head, you know, just listening to what uh, that thought pops up. Yes, but that's not me. Yes, but that's not me. <laughs> we are unable to burn up each circumstance as we encounter it. And the culprit is always our emotional attachment to the circumstance. For example, perhaps your boss asks you to do something unreasonable. At that moment, what is the difference between burning soft coal and hard coal? Or suppose we are looking for employment, but the only work we can find is something we dislike. Or our child gets into trouble at school. In dealing with those, what is the difference between soft coal and hard coal? If there isn't some comprehension of the difference, we have wasted our hours in Sashin. Most of us are chasing after Buddhahood. There's that grasping again. In fact, I'm convinced, you know, part of the grasping I talked about earlier about my own kind of suppressing, suppressing, suppressing. But I'm also convinced that uh, all that straining and striving, which I might talk a little bit more later on, that all that striving and grasping effort uh, is because we're just, we're just grasping. We're just grasping at what we're already fundamentally are, you know, whole and complete. Uh, but we just keep grasping on, on wanting to realize that. And it kind of, I think for me, it really kind of, well, I think for a lot of us, just kind of translates in tension in the body and not really doing the practice, you know, just constantly, that, there's that fist again, constantly just grasping on, wanting to get that realization and run.
Most of us are here chasing after the Buddhahood, after Buddhahood. Yet Buddhahood is how you deal with your boss or your child, your lover or your partner, whoever. Our life is always absolute. That's all there is. The truth is not somewhere else, but we have minds that are trying to burn the past or the future. The living present, Buddhahood, is rarely encountered. She goes on, when the fire in the furnace is banked and you want a brightly burning fire, what do we do? You increase the air intake. All right, that's that skill for concentration. You increase the air intake or effort. It can be effort, just putting, yeah, just concentrating the mind more. We are, we are fires too. And when the mind quiets down, we can breathe more deeply and the oxygen intake goes up. We burn with a cleaner flame and our action comes out of that flame. Instead of trying to figure out in our minds what action to take, what action to take, we only need to purify the base of ourselves. The action will flow out of that. The mind, quiet down, the mind quiets down because we observe it instead of getting lost in it. Then the breathing deepens and when the fire really burns, there's nothing it can't consume. This kind of reminds me later on in Sashin, day five, day six, we just become so, we were so much more concentrated then than the, the, this, this, we're no longer so much caught up in the, in, in the drama of our thoughts. When the fire gets hot enough, there is no self because now the fire is consuming everything. There is no separation between self and other. We don't like to think of ourselves as just physical beings. Yet the whole transformation of sitting is physical. It's not some miraculous thing that happens in our head. When we burn soft coal, we are misusing our minds so that they are constantly clogged with fantasies, opinions, desires, speculations, analysis, and we try to find right action out of that bog. When something goes wrong in our life, what do we try to do? We sit down, we try to figure it out, mull it, over, mull it over, speculate about it. That doesn't work. It doesn't work in practice. It's just reminds me of, of, you know, no one, no one in all of history has ever figured out Mu. What does work is noticing our mental aberrations, which are not true thinking. We observe our emotional thoughts, quote, yeah, I really can't stand her. She's a terrible person. We just notice, notice, notice. You just notice, notice, notice. I'm going to read from uh, an article. Uh, this was in the New York Times, May 27, 2008, called Lotus Therapy. 
and and it, oh, and it's by a Benedict Carey. And this is how it starts. The patient sat with his eyes closed, submerged in the rhythm of his own breathing, and after a while noticed that he was thinking about his troubled relationship with his father. And he says, I was able to be there, present for the pain. When the meditation, he said, <clears throat> excuse me, I was able to be there, present for the pain, he said, when the med meditation session ended, to just let it be what it was, without thinking it through. The therapist nodded. Acceptance is what that, accepting, acceptance is what it was, he continued, just letting it be, not trying to change anything. That's it, the therapist said. That's it, and that's big. So that's your hard call right there. Just letting it be, not trying to change anything. And the article goes on. This exercise in focus awareness and mental catch and release of emotions has become perhaps the most popular new psychotherapy technique of the past decade. Mindfulness meditation is catching the attention of talk therapists of all stripes, including academic researchers, Freudian analysts in private practice, and skeptics who see all the hallmarks of another fad. For years, psychotherapists have... Okay, that, that didn't sound quite right here. Um, so this mindfulness, but they, it is catching the attention of talk therapists of all stripes, including academic researchers, Freudian analysis and private practice, and skeptics who see all the hallmarks of another fad. Okay, for years, psychotherapists have worked to relieve suffering by reframing the content of patients' thoughts, directly altering behavior or helping people gain insight into the subconscious sources of their despair and anxiety. The promise of mindfulness meditation is that it can help patients endure flash floods of emotion during the therapeutic process and ultimately alter reactions to daily experience at a level that words cannot reach. Quote, the interest in this has just taken off, said Zindel Segal, a psychologist at the Center of Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, where the above group therapy session was taped. And I think a big part of it is that more and more therapists are practicing some forms of contemplation themselves and want to bring that into therapy. In transcendental meditation and other types of meditation, practitioners seek to transcend or, quote, lose themselves. The goal of mindfulness meditation, or we can say the goal of Zazen, was different. To foster an awareness of every sensation as it unfolds in the moment. Oh, excuse me. So that's, that. I shouldn't say Zazen. That's mindful, mindfulness meditation. Dr. Kabat-Zinn taught the practice to people suffering from chronic pain at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. In the 1980s, he published a series of studies demonstrating that two-hour courses given once a week for eight weeks reduce chronic pain more effectively than treatment as usual. 
No, it doesn't go into detail here. I, I very much suspect, you know, this this um, this practice that he's showing. Obviously, it's not trying to do anything with the pain, but changing our relationship with the pain through the meditation, through the mindfulness meditation. Word spread discreetly at first. Quote, I think that back then other researchers had to be very careful when they talked about this because they didn't want to be seen in as new age weirdos, Dr. Kabat-Zinn um, said in an interview. So they didn't call it mindfulness or meditation. After a while, we put enough studies out there that people became more comfortable with that. One person who noticed early on was Marsha Linehan, a psychologist at the University of Washington who was trying to treat deeply troubled patients with histories of suicidal behavior. She says, trying to treat these patients with some change-based behavior therapy just made them worse, not better. Dr. Linehan said in an interview, with the real hard stuff, you need something else, something that allows people to tolerate these very strong emotions. So actually, John Sensei gave a Taisho, uh, this in January 29, this year, about Marshall Linehan. I mean, it's just such a remarkable story about just, uh, just really briefly, you know, she became severely suicidal and was actually in psychiatric wards for quite a while at the end, you know, at the end of high school. And then, and then she got out of it and, and started, um, trying, trying to, for lack of a better word, trying to figure things out, you know, how to help people. She made that great vow of helping others. Uh, and, uh, and eventually came on to Zen practice and, and came up with a whole um, new kind of therapy system. Uh, and that's the the show is called Marshall Linehan and Radical Acceptance. So yeah, in the 1990s, Dr. Linehan published a series of studies finding that a therapy that incorporated Zen Buddhist mindfulness, quote, radical acceptance, practiced by therapists and patients significantly, significantly cut the risk of hospitalization and suicide attempts in the high-risk patients. After mastering control of attention, some therapists say a person can turn mentally to face a threatening or troubling thought about, say, a strained relationship with a parent and learn simply to endure the anger or sadness and let it pass without lapsing into rumination or trying to change the feeling, a move that often backfires. One woman, a doctor who had been in therapy for years to manage bouts of dis disabling anxiety, recently began seeing uh, a therapist called Logan in Austin, Texas, who incorporates mindfulness meditation into her practice. This patient had plenty to worry about, including a mentally ill child, a divorce and what she described as quote harsh internal voice miss logan said after practicing mindfulness meditation she continued to feel anxious at times but told miss logan i can stop and observe my feelings and thoughts and have compassion for myself stephen hayes a psychologist at the university of nevada at reno has developed a talk therapy called acceptance commitment therapy or act based on a similar Buddha-like effort to move beyond language to change fundamental psychological processes. 
this is what he says it's a shift from having our mental health defined by the content of our thoughts it's a shift from having our mental health defined by the content of our thoughts to having it defined by our relationship to that content and changing that relationship by sitting with noticing and becoming disentangled from our definitions of ourselves John Nash, the economist who suffered uh, with schizophrenia most of his life, says, don't rebuke the negative voices. Just leave them alone. And this leaving them alone um, as I guess the only thing I can say about that, I mean, I guess it just depends on our karma, you know, our circumstances, but it, it can be a hard thing to do. It's, 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 it's good to hear that over and over again, but don't listen to your negative thoughts. And that will get easier and easier to get that word disentangled from our thoughts. Uh, long, the longer we practice, it's just, it really is just a process, just a process of refining and refining and disentangling ourselves from whatever is coming up, you know, to just be there and experience it and not get tangled up and snared in it. It's that, those clouds again, just a weather pattern coming through. And the more we can, yeah, the more we can put ourselves on the, on the method, as uh, Ashengen says, the more the more it will pass, the quicker it will pass. We want to think, we want to speculate. Oh, sorry, <laughs> going back to Joko Beck here. Uh, we want to think, we want to speculate, we want to fantasize, we want to figure it all out. We want to know the secrets of the universe. When we do all that, the fire stays banked. It's not getting any oxygen. This, we want to know the secrets of the universe. It kind of reminds me, um, oh, well, again, I'll just use my own personal experience. You know, it's kind of younger. I was just so obsessed with the meaning of life, trying to figure things out. But then once I started practicing, uh, after a while, I just reflected, it doesn't, the meaning of life just kind of just dropped to the wayside. Like it's just, yeah, obsessing about that. Then we wonder why we're sick mentally and physically. The burning is so clogged, there's nothing but debris coming off. And that debris doesn't just dirty us, it dirties everything. So it's important to sit every day. Otherwise, the understanding of the burning process gets so dim and cloudy that the fires stay banked. Banked. We have to sit every day. Even 10 minutes is better than not sitting at all. Sashins are also essential for serious students. Daily sitting may keep a low-grade fire burning, but usually it doesn't burn, burst into a full blaze. So let's just continue with Sashin. There's nothing you won't face before you're done with it. Rage, jealousy, bliss, boredom. 
Watch yourself as you cling to feeling sorry for yourself, as you cling to your problems, as you cling to the awful state, quote, awful state of your life. Again, that's that being, becoming that impartial witness, just observing. That's your drama. The truth is we like our drama very much. People tell me they want to be free of their troubles, but when we stew in our own voices, we can maintain ourselves as the artificial center of the universe. We love our drama. We like to complain and agonize and moan. Isn't it terrible? I'm so lonely. Nobody loves me. We enjoy our soft coal, but the messiness of that incomplete burning can be tragic for me and for you. Let's practice well. All right, well, I think I've just realized probably running out of time and I don't want I do want to leave some time for questions and answers. Uh, but I am going to finish um, I'm going to finish with a story. If I can find it, get back to my outline. Okay. Oh, and I guess skillful effort will have to wait. Maybe I'll talk about that whenever I give a, another Dahmer talk. Okay, here we go. Final story. A modern master described how the Buddha had encouraged his monks by stating that those who practiced diligently would surely be enlightened in seven days, or if not in seven days, then in seven months or seven years. A young American monk heard this and asked if it was still true. The master, Ajahn Shah, from the Thai force tradition, promised that if the young monk was continuously mindful without a break for only seven days, he would be enlightened. Kind of remind, reminds me of the young Philip Kaplow when he was in Japan in his first seven days Sashin and Harada Roshi promised to pay for his plane ticket home if he gets enlightened during this first Sashin. But back to our young monk. Excitedly, the young monk started his seven days only to be lost in forgetfulness that 10 minutes later. Coming back to himself, he again stated his seven days, only to become, uh, coming back to himself, he again went back to getting into the seven days, only to become lost once more in mindless thought, perhaps about what he would do after his enlightenment. Again and again, he began his seven days and again and again, he lost his continuity of mindfulness. A week later, he was not enlightened, but had become very much aware of his habitual fantasies and wandering of mind, a most instructive way to begin his practice on the path to real awakening. And that's it. So, uh, so yeah, we do have time for some if anyone has any questions, and we actually kind of uh, worked out this new system where Joe's working on it right now. Uh, it will allow people who are on Zoom, uh, just give us a minute here, but people on Zoom can actually ask questions as well if they want to. Uh, Jisai is the Zoom monitor and she'll be moderating that. Uh, she'll keep an eye open for anyone online who has a ha you know their hand raised and they can ask a question, and everyone here in the Zendo can hear that question. 
Uh, are we set? Hopefully. Okay, let's see if this works. Yeah. Maybe say a few words about the uh, about situations where uh, sort of intellectual analysis isn't going to get you anywhere. Obviously, like trying to figure out Mu ver versus where it, when it is a uh, a helpful thing. And the reason I bring this up is something I remember when I I first joined the center. I was still practicing law, and that really kind of put me off. Was again and again I have senior people tell me, oh, it's not good to have an occupation like law or being an accountant, that, that the phrase they kept using was, that's too heady, that's too heady, you don't want to be involved in that. And obviously, <laughs> that's practicing law is very different than, than, than trying to figure out move. But, uh, but it was something I remember that just sort of really put me off, and over the years, I've, I've had n new people come to me and sort of ask similar things, so I thought maybe you could address Yeah, it actually kind of reminds me, I remember reading the three pillars of Zen and getting the impression that um, Zen was like really anti-intellectual. And it's not. I mean, it's just, we use the thinking mind as just an incredible tool and we can figure things out, things that need to be figured out that we can use our our you know, our discursive intellect, our, yeah, to, for legal writing or, you know, academics. Um, yeah, and, and sometimes, yeah, so there's that, but then just so much, so much of our attention that we focus is on, is on our thoughts, trying to figure things out. It's, yeah, going back to Mu, Mu will never be figured out. You know, there's a resolution, there's an experience, but it's not, you know, it's, that's what's so, that's just the genius of cons is you can't figure them out. They're just, there's not, there's just no way, you know, it bypasses the intellect. So yeah, when you're just doing the legal writing, trying to figure things out, figure it out. But other than that, go sit. And then, and, and it's kind of like the really, you know, sometimes we describe um, just, personal problems or a crisis in say a relationship uh, that can, I, I for me relationships are, can be the trickiest thing because we're just we're attached and to try and figure things out can be really hard and zazen can't promise you necessarily the answer right away uh, but at least with zazen you know it's kind of like giving this talk just before you know sitting yeah i had a little bit of anxiety coming up but you're just you're disentangling yourself from that anxiety and you're just doing the practice you know that's all you need to do and you don't need a solution you don't need to figure it out you don't need to figure out your anxiety it's just there you know and you disentangle it's that impartial observer and you're just experiencing it and then just passes and then next thing you know i'm done with the talk so <laughs> that's zazen you know, it's not figuring things out. Chris. Could you comment on how a person can make an effort without grasping? Yeah, you know, there's, it's just, it's just, <laughs> just going back to the practice. I know it's just, it's just, it gets easier as we go on, especially, you know, and 
I'm sure I mentioned sashin a lot, but you know, doing an all day or just extending or sitting, it just, it just by osmosis, you know, just we're naturally just kind of it just. What was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out, and I forgot your question. just doing the practice and just kind of and hearing it over and over again you know it's like that suppressing of the thoughts you know I would just hear finally it finally sunk in after hearing hearing it the fifth or sixth time uh, or six hundredth time you know um, it just finally sunk in and then that practice changed so yeah going to Doksan hearing Teisho's those are great you know that they, they can help but there is something it's kind of like it does your question Chris reminds me of how we talk about our attention, you know, we get out of this by doing our practice, putting our effort into the practice, we get out of our heads and our, we naturally, our attention ends up in the belly. Now, we don't talk about that very much because we don't want to make a technique out of it like we start trying to do that. It just eventually, if we just stick with the practice long enough, you'll just find that your attention just gets down into the horror area in the belly and then that's when you know the drama up here it's not so it's not so important it just doesn't really matter and we just kind of the little trick in here in terms of technique here's a little trick that i always found helpful is you get your hands the cusp of your hands right up against the belly that just little physical connection can can help with that process sensei you're going to say something can I ask that question in a different way? Well, what might it look like to be accepting of the impulse to grasp? Well, you're just aware of that impulse to grasp and not grasp. You know, there, there's, there's, a, there's two things that we do. One is the bare effort of our practice, whatever it is, a breath or a koan. And the other is the effort to do it right. And that's the that's the problem. That's the that's the we can you can be focused on move or you can be focused on the breath or you can be focused on how well you're doing it and what result you're gonna get. And so, you know, the problem with effort is that we think of it as is my effort successful or is it not? Uh, so it's it's just it's opening the hand of thought, opening the that noticing that attachment and just letting it go and being okay with struggling, you know, for um, for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the expectation thing, the expecting mind is just such a maddening thing. And you know, I still have that those expectations but the only difference now is like it's just it's just there but all right just get back to it you know you notice that the expectations are the worst i'm convinced that's what's that is the thing that hindered me for years is expecting results from the practice when all you need to do is just
Jonathan. Um, something when you were reading about Joko Beck with uh, the, the term dispassionate kept coming up um, in what you were talking about. And I, I guess I wanted to challenge that or question that a little bit because my, my personal experience and my observation of, of you know, advanced practitioners around this community uh, is, is, is that people are anything but, anything but dispassionate. Um, and, and I know my own personal transformation, you know, there was this, this sort of intellectual dispassionate where, you know, you could, oh, you're having feelings and you could intellectualize them away and you could, you know, even maybe stand back and be an observer, but it would be this, you know, intellectual exercise. Uh, and, and, and like I said, what I find in my personal experience, and I, I suspect the others here, that, that it's as you, as I have gotten less tangled in thought and when I'm doing things, when I'm doing things more free of thought, that the, it's incredibly passionate um, on both ends. You know, the, the, the miracle that surrounds us on a daily basis is more visible. Um, and, and then when I'm Sashin and, and, and the intellectualization has been worn down, uh, you know, I'll cry like I cry nowhere else. The most passionate cry, you know, therapeutic, passionate cry. So anyway, I, I just, I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Uh, I just find it's a challenging word to say dispassionate because I see both, both sides of it. Yes, you're right. That's it. I mean, that's that's the hard that's the hard coal burning. You know, it's it's we're, zazen is not about thinking about like well, we're about living. It's not about thinking. It's we're about living our lives. You know, and and just the more you get, yeah, the way the more. I mean, you said it all, Jonathan. That's it. It's just burning the hard coal. You know, so that when you do grieve, you're just grieving. You're not trying to suppress it. You're just experiencing it, and let the tears flow. You know, I remember hearing about the sashin where Roshi got a sense from a lot of people going to Doksan that they were suppressing things, and he just came in here and he just said, "It's okay to cry if there's stuff coming up." The next thing you know, I, I don't know, about a third of the Zendo started crying. You know, it's just that's 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 living your life. You know, it's not thinking about your life. You're not thinking about your feelings, or you're just yeah, you're just burning that hard coal. And just allowing things to, to you know, we're, it's Zen practice really, as time goes on, you just become a more authentic, human feeling person. And just, just to put in a word for dispassion, a lot of that is just not believing their thoughts because, you know, besides a genuine feeling, there's just a ton of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's the soft coal, I guess, that Chuck was talking about. Truman. Yes. On the grasping theme, uh, Anand has Shakyamuni um, Buddha in the Shurangama Sutra. Why do we keep reincarnating? And he said, he said that for just there are only two reasons why we keep on reincarnating. One is we are addicted to things that are impermanent, and we confuse our luminous mind for our discriminating mind. So that would be the 
the soft and the and the hard coal, right? Is uh, in the Shurangama, in the Prashna Paramita, there is that sentence that says, you know, and the Bodhisattva holding to nothing, whatever, right? So we have that harmony of the of the absolute and the relative, right? So when we're in the Zendo, right, uh, we cling to nothing. But when we're walking outside, right, we have to use our discriminating mind, right? Uh, yeah. But we have to, like you were saying, we have to pay attention uh, to whether we are identifying, you can say clinging. It's, it's, it's a matter of what discovering our language, the language that works for us. Right? And everybody has a different language. Um, grasping, you could use another word. So it's, sometimes we're trying to, to use everybody, somebody else's word and take it to heart. But in our heart, it means something else. Uh, and the trick is to find out how do I use that word? And grasping, everybody uses the word grasping, but to you it just, just mean, but for me it just could mean, well, I am identifying. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Truman, grasping. I mean, I identify myself as Truman, and yet, you know, I'm not. You know, we're not, it's, it's a, what you just said, Al, reminds me of, you know, the Buddha never said that there is no permanent, no self, you know, there is a self, you know, our grasping, our grasping, petty, blah, 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 blah self, but, but um, that, that, that can change and it becomes softer, our, our identifying uh, with ourselves get softer and you know we struggle with anger we get maybe if we've you know i've seen you know i've seen that that's what's so that's what's so great about sangha is being with sangha and see it's so hard to see the change in ourselves but to see the change in others you know that yeah sure they they still get angry they still snap but it's not as it's 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 cleaner they don't they don't hold on to it as long or they're just become more, I've seen like the most kind of um, bogged down, and I'm including myself in this bogged down, confused, slow, drag your feet kind of person. And then I see them come out of Doksan and they're just totally in it. They're totally, they're not identifying with whatever's going on in the mind. They're just, they're just right there and they're just, they charge out of the Doksan room and it's clean. Um, how are we doing on time? We're yeah, yeah, and there's actually a group coming in at 10.45, so <laughs> that will have to greet. Um, all right, and I think the doorbell just rang, so <laughs> I guess with that, we'll recite the four vows.